0: Welcome to the Accelerate Positivity Podcast on social and emotional learning, AKA SEL. Here, you will learn from wellness and SEL experts about how to increase positivity and decrease negativity in your life. You'll be an SEL expert in no time. Okay, welcome everybody to our fifth and final episode of the Accelerate Positivity Podcast Castle Series. I'm your host, Kerrigan Cavolo, and today I'm joined once again by Tom Reardon, our SEL teacher and CASA representative, and we are super excited to have on today Dr. Maurice J. Elias. Maurice is a professor in the psychology department at Rutgers University, as well as the director of the social, emotional, and character development lab, and the co-director of the Rutgers-based Academy for SEL in Schools, which offers online certificates in SEL instruction and school leadership. He's also a member of the leadership teams for SEL for NJ, New Jersey, and SEL for U.S. He received the Joseph E. Zins Memorial Senior Scholar Award for Social-Emotional Learning from CASEL, the Sanford McDonnell Award for Lifetime Achievement in Character Education, and the Jane Bostrom Service to School Psychology Award. So welcome, Maurice. Welcome, Tom. We're super excited to have you on today.
1: Great. Great to be here. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being here.
0: Yeah, so I kind of wanted to, I know today's episode is all about responsible decision making, but before we get into that, I want to really take, um, take this opportunity to educate our listeners on SEL even from a broader perspective, since we have you on, Maurice, and you really have contributed your life's work to SEL, and so I would really just love to hear more from you about what SEL is to you and your background. Well, you know, my
2: view of SEL has evolved over time, and uh, and I think it's just it's worth noting that I got started in SEL work through decision making, and through the work of George Spivak and Myrna Shore, at that time working in Philadelphia with a program they called Interpersonal Cognitive Problem Solving, ICPS, uh, which then became uh, better uh, mar- marketed as I Can Problem Solve. So just like CASEL changed the name, but kept the acronym, uh, George and Myrna uh, kept the acronym and changed the name. And uh, their approach was very much uh, focusing on problem solving as a central skill. And and that's kind of where I started. But um, as uh, things evolved, it became clear that one could not just problem solve. That there was a concept of readiness for problem solving, and readiness for problem solving meant, in part, that you had to kind of stop and slow yourself down. You had to deal with your strong emotions and, and start to think about things a little bit before you reacted. Um, also, had to pay attention to the behaviors that you're going to need to carry out your good idea. And so, so pretty soon it became clear that problem solving was part of a larger set of of abilities and competencies. And in fact, before it was SEL, these were referred to as social emotional competencies. And a number of the folks who founded uh, CASEL uh, used that term, met around that term. Um, When Dan Goleman's book came out in 1995, uh, the book Emotional Intelligence, that really put emotions front and center for everybody. And uh, it was as a result of that, that it was determined that, um, that the, the next iteration of this work would be called social emotional learning. There was a lot of debate about it. Should it be called social cognitive or just social? But the research was so compelling about the need to call it emotional explicitly, that uh, that became the term in vogue. Now it's what we uh, We we talk about as SEL, social emotional learning. But what I've come to understand is that SEL is uh, sort of a description of the whole set of skills we need to do what we do on this earth, that anything that we do interpersonally requires this constellation of abilities in order to happen, and it's what we have labeled as SEL. And so you know, as we've gotten clearer about this, we've tended to elaborate SEL more and more because we see that to actually do things in the world uh, requires more, requires a lot of different things. Problem solving is at the center of that, problem solving and decision-making, so-called responsible decision-making, but, but it's connected. It's connected to all the other uh, castle competencies and even more competencies that we haven't necessarily explicitly identified. So, so the way I like to say it now is that SEL is what helps our valued outcomes to happen. You pick anything you want to do, and SEL is going to be important for that to happen. Any subject area in school, any career that you can think of, you subtract the SEL, you got big problems. So, so that's, my, that's my perception about, about SEL and how it's evolved over time.
0: I love it. And what would you say maybe are some of the misperceptions that people have about SEL?
2: Yeah, it's a thing, you know, it's just sort of another thing that, that, uh, that we can learn. That that it's a discrete skill and it and that it's optional. You know, it's 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 as optional as breathing. You know, if, quite honestly, and I don't consider breathing pretty optional. I consider that pretty important. Um, and and like breathing, uh, you know, it's not something that you do once a week, uh, in your third period class. Uh, breathing is a really important thing to do all the time, and and you don't just breathe during your you know breathing time. You you breathe. All the time. And, uh, and, and so I think one of our misperceptions about SEL is that it is just this sort of little set of skills. Here's our bigger misperception even than that. And that is that, that um, SEL has a valence. And SEL doesn't have a valence. These skills have been built into us to accomplish what we want to accomplish. But these skills do not tell us what we want to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And so this is why you know, our lab changed from the SCL lab to the social, emotional, and character development lab. Because it became pretty clear to us that, that in, in life, the skills are the propellers that move us forward. But character and virtue Values. That's the that's the rudder, and and you know our journey of life requires both, requires us to have that movement, but also to set a direction. And I think that that uh, there's been a lot of implicit direction setting in SEL, and we have to pull that out and be more explicit about it. And you know there's a lot of talk about SEL being uh, a uh, colonialization tool. Um, that, that SEL is a tool of oppression, that SEL skills are used to, uh, to dampen down people's emotions and promote inactivity. Um, really? That's, that's like saying that the car drives the driver. Uh, you know, people can use SEL for purposes that are not good in the same way that they use the alphabet to write hateful speech, but we don't condemn the alphabet because people use it to write hateful speech, and the idea that SEL should be, uh, you know, uh, somehow uh, watched out for because it can be used in negative ways is, I think, a, a misunderstanding and a misperception of what of what SEL is, and uh, and I think we're grappling with that right now.
0: That's very interesting because. To me, like you look at the five competencies, like self-awareness, social awareness, relationship skills, and and I just see a bunch of opportunity for us to just be better people, better friends, um, and to like align with our values. So that's really interesting to me. Based on the kind of reading that I've done about SEL and emotional intelligence, it does seem that there are still schools and organizations that are resistant to this sort of thing. So I'd love to hear um, you speak to that a little bit, Maurice.
2: Yeah, well, you know, there's, there's, there's resistance to character education, you know, there's resistance to uh, anybody telling kids, uh, you know, what they should do, that that's the parent's job to, to set the direction. And these are, these are complicated issues, quite honestly, and communities and schools need to talk about it. But my own perception is that, that a school has to run according to a set of principles. Uh, and those principles involve some core values that the school stands for something. Uh, it's not just a place that people come into, it's a place with a mission. You know, uh, the other day, uh, Monday actually, a couple of days, two days before now, I was um, speaking with a group of educators from Singapore. And they have a program there that they call Character and Citizenship Education. And in their schools, they are very clear about the kind of student that they want to turn out. And if you don't want your student to be that kind of student, then probably you should send your kid elsewhere. But, uh, but this uh, public system uh, with support of the government and legislature, educators, and broadly speaking, um, they, they're very clear about the fact that they want their students to be engaged citizens. They want their students to be tolerant of one another. If you know anything about Singapore, it is a very multicultural society that cannot survive with polarization. And so they, uh, they put uh, Harmony, they have a museum of Harmony actually that I visited. It's very inspiring. Um, they put Harmony at the center and they want their kids to be able to speak to one another, resolve their differences, be really good problem solvers and be civically engaged and together try to deal with community issues. And, and they're very clear about that. And, and I think in a similar way, our schools, if they're gonna be effective, need to be places that kids go into where they, they know why they're there. They can align with a purpose. And, and that purpose is what motivates kids to learn. So I, I think that we have to be able to deal with that very difficult issue. But we have to recognize that, that kids don't learn because of the inherent interesting nature of the material they're learning. Kids learn for two primary reasons. One, they learn because of the relationship they have with their teacher. And second, they learn because they're aligned with the purpose of the school. And when those two things converge, boy, you can't hold kids back. They're gonna learn so much, it's, it's fantastic. And when you look at the schools that are failed schools, uh, schools that have had persistent difficulty, it's not the kids, not the kids. It's the failure to provide a strong set of relationships to the kids and a failure for the school to articulate a positive vision of what every single student walking into the door can become and communicate that vision unequivocally to every kid that they have potential, that they've got a positive future of contribution to this society. And it doesn't matter what they've done in the past. You walk into these doors, you matter, you have a purpose, you are aligned with this school. And therefore, therefore, you need these SEL competencies to help your valued outcomes to happen. I don't care if you're gonna be a musician, an artist, a computer operator, I don't care if you're gonna be a historian, I don't care if you're gonna go into small business, you are going to need those SEL skills, but you're only going to want to, to excel in SEL if you have a purpose. And, and that's where I think we've gotten uh, a little bit off, off the track. And, and that's what we need to do. The, the resistance, I think, is a failure to recognize the way kids learn. And I think a lot of times people are back thinking about the way they learned and the way schooling was for them. And, um, and you know, we've got to move on, got to move on, got to get people on, got to get people to watch a little bit more TikTok and loosen up mm. a little bit.
0: Yeah. I mean, it also makes me think about the relevance of these concepts in the workplace too. Like hearing you Talk about how we can encourage kids and like give them this confidence and the skills to feel like they can achieve whatever they want to achieve. I also just really think if we could incorporate that, I know people are incorporating it into the workplace, but for adults, like it's not too late for you, right? Like you can still learn these skills because so many of us, like, of course, we didn't get this kind of education growing up. And part of what I hope to do with this podcast and by having you guys on. Is to encourage adults to do this too and pursue their their goals.
2: Yeah, look, I mean, the <clears throat> several realities, right? First of all, you can go back into uh, into scripture in any language, and you'll see SEL. Uh, you'll see that they that this isn't something we thought about recently. That people were thinking about how do we live with one another, what's the right way to relate to one another. There's a reason why. Uh, scripture is filled with the discussions about kindness and gratitude and helping and being considerate of those who are less fortunate. I mean, these are, these are things that have been eternal concerns. And, and also, on the other hand, there's the institution of therapy. So if you think about it, uh, if adults couldn't change and couldn't progress, then no adult going into therapy would ever get better. But because we have a lot of plasticity and because we can learn to change our patterns of thinking, uh, we can learn to better manage our emotions. Um, We can learn to have empathy, take better perspective. We can learn to be more accurate in recognizing how we're feeling and what we do when we're feeling that way. That we can learn how to get along better with people, uh, to, to, to be a little bit more engaged in give and take, to actually notice the people that we're with. If we can do all those things and we can be really good problem solvers, we can change any situation. So, yeah, uh, adults absolutely uh, can develop their, their SDL. And, you know, talking about the workplace, um, many folks who know about Castle. Don't know about the Consortium for Research on Emotional Intelligence in Organizations. Eiconsortium.org. That was founded slightly after Castle. It was uh, uh, founded by Dan Goleman with uh, Carrie Chernis, who at that time was a faculty member at Rutgers. And, uh, And basically what they saw was: okay, Castle's doing this stuff for education. Who's going to do this for the business world? So they developed this this organization, and this organization has done extensive research. And if you look at the research, just to summarize, when you go to the website, you can see it there. Companies that attend to emotional intelligence, which is really what the workplace folks call SEL, companies that attend to emotional intelligence do better on the bottom line. And so you you can see study after study Fortune 500 companies and the ones that are doing the best are the ones that pay a lot of attention to emotional intelligence. And if you think about the places that you patronize, that you like to patronize the most, then you will see that you're being treated with the emotional intelligence. For example, if you ever walk into a Disney store, right, you are both referred to and treated in a very specific way as a guest. You're not a, a patron. You're not a client. You're not a you're a guest. And, and they care about you as a guest because they want their guests to be happy. They want their guests to be satisfied. So when you go certain places, you go shopping, right? And you, you go to a, like a department store and you're looking for a shirt and they don't have, they don't seem to have your size and you ask someone, salesperson, Do you have this shirt? Just what's there, right? Just what's there. Eh, That's not, not a great experience. You go to a Disney store and you're looking for a Jiminy Cricket stuffed animal. They don't seem to have. You say, do you have a Jiminy Cricket stuffed animal? They will then go to the phone, to the computer. They will look in every Disney store on the earth to find your Jiminy Cricket. And even if, in fact, they weren't doing that, but just pretending to do that you will feel so much better about that disney store and you will come back in there without hesitation because you're a treated like guest person with value this other place where they wouldn't even you know take a minute to look in the back or just you know just look at the table nope you know you have no you have no brand loyalty to that to that establishment so that's just a, a microcosm of an example But it ripples out in every aspect of the industry, every aspect of helping professions, emotional intelligence in the workplace matters. And businesses will tell you, they'll tell K to 12 education. We can train the technical skills. You got to send these kids with a little bit better SEL. That's what, that's what they want. And that by the way, is how SEL got to Singapore. Just a brief anecdote on that, which is important, is that you know, Singapore has these fantastic scores, and we're always thinking, oh, if we could only get scores like Singapore. And the business community in Singapore said, enough with the scores. We're not getting kids from your education system that, that are working well for us. And this is why uh, Singapore has system-wide character and citizenship education because they know wow. this is at the core of what they have to do and the scores they, they, the scores aren't going to go down they know that but mm-hmm. if the scores went down a little bit and they had all this other stuff going on whoa that's the bargain that they will take
0: that is so awesome and i can totally relate you know going to a place where you just yeah where you ask for something and they say oh well if it's not there it's not there and You just feel like, oh, okay, and I don't really want to go back there again. And I just, uh, I really like this, what seems to be like transition that's occurring or shift that's occurring where I've just been doing a little bit of like job hunting. And I've even seen a lot of companies in their like job descriptions, basically saying unlimited paid time off, which seems crazy to me. And then also like professional development, they pay for your like gym membership, like all of these things that... If I saw it once, I'd be like, oh, this seems like kind of unrealistic, like this isn't real. But I've seen it in so many different company descriptions that it seems like we really are just like shifting to this world of business where they they want to put their employees first because they know investing in their employees is, one, going to increase the bottom line. But also, employees are going to want to stay, and they're going to be happier, and that's always a good thing.
2: Imagine if that happened in education. No reason it can't. But it's mm-hmm. not the rule, but it, it just may, you know, we don't even have to elaborate on it. It's so obvious that if we mm-hmm. invested in our employees and we invested in their, in their well being and we invested in giving them more professional autonomy and more training, all kinds of benefits would result from that. So th- this, is, this is really key. And, and, you know, and I do believe that at the cornerstone of, uh, of these skills, is responsible decision-making. And and the reason for that is that, as we can see, uh, we are living in a society where we cannot predict well exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be a limit to what we can teach kids didactically. And if they're not equipped to be good problem solvers, uh, ethical and responsible problem solvers, then they're not going to be able to uh, be able to adapt to the future challenges. I mean, is this going to be the only pandemic? I don't think so. Do we know what the next one's going to be? No, we don't. Um, but we, we know we're going to have to have a lot of uh, flexible, creative problem-solving skills to handle it. I mean, without that skill set, we wouldn't have the vaccines that we have. Uh, there were people and organizations that promoted this kind of Innovative decision-making, decision-making with creativity, careful analysis of consequences, short and long-term, detailed plans. You know, I mean, so we have a vaccine. Great. We got to get it someplace. How do we do that? And so once it was clear, you know, once the Pfizer vaccine required these extraordinary cold temperatures in order to be transported, well, a bunch of problem solvers got together and figured out how we're going to do that. And they figured that out. Um, and then you know subsequently as other as other vaccines have been created they have not had such extreme conditions that they've needed for transportation because that kind of got folded into the planning well let's let's see how we can design this so it's going to be even more easily disseminated and so here again we keep going back to problem solving as a, as a central skill you know when we started doing problem solving we had eight problem-solving steps, and they weren't very memorable. Eight's a lot of steps, especially for kids. And one of the innovations that we had in our lab uh, and one of the things that we did that maybe one of the first um, problem-solving approaches to do this was our first step was look for signs of different feelings. So we started the whole thing off with emotions, and we we wanted to to create something memorable for our problem-solving steps. And so for many years we we just couldn't find it. And then we eventually found an acronym, horrible acronym, horrible. The acronym is FIG Tesman, F-I-G-E-E-S-P-N, FIG TESPEN. And what can I tell you? It's but, kind of memorable though. <laughs> well, it's kind of memorable. It's kind of memorable. And, and the key thing is that the whole point of that is that in order for kids to learn any SEL skill. They need to have it prompted. And so we could tell, to tell kids, use your eight problem-solving steps, or to list the steps, very cumbersome. We could tell the kids, use Fig testman. How are you going to use Fig testman when you're in gym class and you're in a difficult situation you don't know what to do? How are you going to use Fig testman? And, and so kids remembered that, that prompt, and they remembered this constellation of skills because they had learned it explicitly, and this is one of the key things that the SEL research has shown, is that if we want our kids to become good problem solvers and decision makers, we've got to give them an explicit strategy, and then we've got to get them to use that strategy over and over and over again, in, not only in our SEL period, but for social studies, for language arts, visual and performing arts, in the gym class, and if the kids keep doing that problem-solving strategy, they begin to internalize it. And then when they face a problem, pops into their head, I think I'll use Fig testment. And so folks that that want to do SEO on the cheap and uh, think that, well, you know, it takes too much time to do this explicit instruction. We'll just do it inductively. You get as good results there as if you tried to teach reading without teaching the alphabet they'll pick it up from the words. No, they won't pick it up from the words. They gotta get those basics. They gotta get the basic sounds. And then when they they have all that, then they can read anything. The same thing is true with problem solving skills. They practice on certain situations, structured situations, role play situations, a variety of situations. And when they've got it and they face a problem, they can apply those skills even to things they haven't done before. So yeah, that that's uh that's that's why we put so much continued emphasis on that because that's the the gateway to the future.
0: You know, I do really just love the emphasis on steps and a process because everybody knows that moment when you're in like a heated discussion and like your emotions are just like this high and you can't think properly. So if you haven't internalized the steps and the process of, of handling that situation, then you're just going to react rather than respond. I've had experiences where I've acted in a way and I look back on it and I'm like, oh, that was an outburst. Like I shouldn't have said that. And then you feel you feel bad. But if you've got these steps and you can follow a trajectory of, Okay, like I have a problem. Let me take a second to reflect on how this could go. And then you get in the habit of just doing that in each of those situations or in a, a number of different situations so that when you are in like the heat of a moment of the moment or in like a high pressure situation, you are able to fall back on those, those steps and those strategies.
2: And for us, you know, the N in FIG test stands for notice what happened, notice your successes and notice what you can learn for next time. Because we we want to be in that continual improvement mode, be thinking about how can I do this a little bit better? What did I neglect in, in analyzing that problem that that will work out better if I think of it? Uh, maybe, maybe my plans weren't quite realistic enough. Maybe I didn't anticipate, didn't spend enough, enough time anticipating obstacles. You know, most people think that if you, pose obstacles to kids' solutions that you discourage them. And so they don't do that. But in our brand of uh, social decision-making and uh, social problem-solving, in our uh, CASEL Select curriculum that does that, and all the things that we've done with it since, anticipating obstacles and role-playing how you would respond to obstacles turns out to be incredibly important. And we explain to kids, you know, look, things may not go the way you think. Uh, you've got a great idea, and you're going to talk to somebody, uh, but that person might have had a really, really bad day. You don't know that. And they may react in a way that's just, wow, you've got to be ready for this. So let's practice and see. doesn't make your idea not good. Um, and then, you know, if we practice and, and doesn't seem to be any way to make your idea work, then maybe maybe it should be rethought before you trot it out there. So, it's all in the spirit of supportiveness. But, key in our data, we found that how kids respond to obstacles to their chosen solution is, is the best predictor of how well they're going to behave in life. Because when you give the kid the obstacle, you generate emotion in the kid. And it's their ability to handle that emotion think through things in spite of that emotion and continue to problem solve effectively, that simulates what happens in real life. know, when we do various exercises and benign role plays in the classroom curriculum, that emotional piece isn't there. But when you give a kid a challenge to the idea that they spent a lot of time thinking of, it generates that emotion. And their ability to work through that emotion is a key to the transfer of learning into the real world.
0: I feel like a lot of what you're saying, it it makes me think of this. You're normalizing iterations, right? You're you're embedding in the process the fact that like things aren't always gonna work out the way that you think they are, and giving them the confidence and the practice to be able to have something maybe not work out the way that they thought and then try a different way rather right. than curling up and feeling like a failure, which I feel like so many people often, they get discouraged. Well, well,
2: here's what happens. Think of going to a pediatrician, right? Kid goes to the pediatrician and the pediatrician does the stuff with the kid and the pediatrician says, and, and don't you get sick again. Kid's going to get sick again. And the kid has to come back to the pediatrician. It, it should be, I'll see you the next time you happen not to feel well. Same thing. You're going you're gonna to run into an obstacle when you try to solve a problem. It's guaranteed. So let's just accept it, normalize it, and be prepared to work through it. Because otherwise, as you say, kids will get uh, very discouraged. And, and who can blame them? I mean, think about this, right? I work with you, and we work to solve this problem, and I go try, it doesn't work. And we go through that process multiple times. Well, how much am I going to believe in you as a guide uh, if every time I try something, it fails? Not very much. And pretty soon, I'm not going to really even want to try. But if we're prepared for that, it changes everything. It means that I'm here for you no matter how it went, and that implicitly, not your fault that it didn't work out. No, we're going to come back, think it through. We're going to figure this out together. And that's what our kids need. They need the partnership. And, and quite honestly, that's one of the powerful things about doing SEL in school, because kids need to also partner together to solve problems. People need to be more collaborative, because we know uh, know this from research that SPVAC and Sure did. Uh, in particular, that the, the first solution you think of is not the best one, almost never. You got somebody to push you into thinking more creatively, and, and your better solutions will turn out to be the more effective ones. The, the subsequent solutions will turn out to be the more effective ones. So we, we know we know a lot about this stuff. And uh, and and you know, getting it implemented into practice
1: is one of the ongoing challenges, but it's important you know it's been fascinating um Maurice really enjoying everything that you've been saying and last week we had some standardized testing going on here in Arizona so I was working with some third fourth and fifth graders who were who were taking their AZ merit test and I had a fifth grader melt down during one of the math tests and he slammed his pencil down and threw his eraser and Pushed the paper off off the table and onto the floor, and so we sat and we talked. And I asked, you know, I said, I can see that you're you're a little frustrated right now, and that's you know, we all get frustrated. um, But you know, let's let's get the test back up on the table and let's let's think about how we can approach this in a different way. And and we we went through some breathing on how you know we, we all get frustrated and what happens to our brains when we get frustrated. They speed up and and he said, yeah, my brain's going so fast right now. And so I said, well, you know, there's something I do when I, my brain's going really fast. I just try to breathe a little bit and think about my breathing for a few seconds. And so we, we practiced some breaths and we, we did a thing I found pretty, pretty helpful for fifth graders to try to breathe from our feet up to our head and then feel it go out from our head back through our feet. And so we did that and he calmed down and, and I said, well, you know, let's, let's just try a different, don't worry so much about whether the answer is right or wrong, but doing your best. This test is to help you. And he hadn't really looked at it from that angle. I don't think that, that this, you know, this it doesn't matter whether you get the answer right or wrong so much as how can I help you get from here to here? And that's, we bridge that gap by finding out what you know and so, all right, I'm ready to try again. And I saw him over there breathing and he came up to me af- afterwards um, and said, you know what? I didn't have a meltdown on the rest of the test. And I said, that's awesome, you know, you, you know, and wh- why is that? He said, well, I, I thought about it and it's a lot easier just to breathe than to get mad about a math problem. And then he pointed out the next day in part two, no meltdowns today. And they call me Mr. Tom. So no meltdowns today, Mr. Tom. And, you know, I just, I was listening to Fig Tespin and I was like, I think I taught him a few pieces of Fig Tespin. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> In that, you know, we, we I use pickle as an acronym with, they love, the students typically work with kindergarten through um, this year, kindergarten through second grade. But I, we do pickle and pickle is for, P is for problem. And when we have a problem, sometimes we have to stop and think about what actually is the problem? Because our brains get going so fast, right? Or we're not focusing on what the root of that problem is that we don't stop and think like, hey, I don't need to solve all these other things. I, if I don't know what the problem is, I gotta focus. So problem and then is it, how, and then I is very important. How important is it for me to spend a lot of energy on this problem? And sometimes, when we realize what a problem is, we realize it's not that important. There's other things that I can move on to. But when we, then we talk about, well, and if I don't solve it, what are the consequences? So that's C. If I don't do anything about it, is it going to keep bugging me or is it going to go away? And then Q is what is it is a, is is a tough one for the kids, but we talk about adding it is quantify. Is there is there some value I can put to this problem? Does how is it affect? Is it going to affect my grade or my friendship or something that matters to me? And then L is stop. Can I, am I willing to stop and look and listen? Hmm. So it's you know similarly awkward maybe as fig testing. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but see the, the interesting issue is that if you use pickle
2: and and, and Kerrigan uses gherkin and I use cucumber, the kids are going to be confused. There's nothing inherently better about a pickle uh, and a cucumber and a gherkin. And what what the kids need is everybody on the same page. And, and, you know, because all the problem-solving steps are basically equivalent. And, And so the key, because they are going to learn through repetition, and because repetition occurs in multiple contexts over multiple years, we just we all educators all have to get together and make a decision. are we going to have pickles? Are we going to have you know cream cheese? Know, it doesn't matter what it is. It just has to be one thing. Now, you know it could be that, that and I've worked in, in with districts that for three years, they had pickles, and then for the next years they had sauerkraut. So So you make the transition and you say, well, you know, when you were a little kid, so you had pickles, but now that you're growing up, You have sauerkraut and 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 it's really the same thing but sauerkraut's a little bit you know more interesting so you know but but they don't have sauerkraut on monday coleslaw on tuesday mustard on wednesday ketchup on thursday and friday they have nothing that doesn't happen that that's not going to give them the skills that they need just in the same way as if if we taught the english alphabet on monday the greek alphabet on tuesday the Cyrillic alphabet on Wednesday, you know, the, the kids would be illiterate. So, so we just have to take our common sense that we apply to other areas and, and put it into this this, this whole area. Now here's, here's an interesting other thing. I like to ask teachers at the beginning of the school year to have a conversation with kids. And here's a and and Tom to take your example. What do I want you? I'm the teacher, what do I want you to do? if you're taking a test and you find yourself getting incredibly confused and uptight, what do I want you to do? That conversation almost never happens in schools. So kids have to figure it out on their own. And of course, when they don't have figured out on their own, they have a meltdown. After the meltdown, they come to you and you give them a strategy. And they, they'll use that strategy, but they may not think to use that strategy in a different class and they may not remember that strategy next year. On the other hand, if, if the kids are you know, taught from the very beginning what to do in these predictable situations, it, it can be preventive. And that's, that's another value that I hold very importantly, that, that you know, while we can do a lot of things with kids after the fact, the more we can be preventive, the less misery, the less discouragement, uh, etc. The kids have to experience and so much the better for their for their growth. But I actually had a, a student a graduate student Yoni Schwab, who did his masters with uh, students taking math tests. And before before they had any tests, uh, one group of students was trained in a, a breathing technique, just like the one you are describing. Uh, they didn't call it the same thing. They used an analogy of smell the pizza. Yeah, it's all doesn't matter, right? It's the same idea. Um, and so they they would learn learn that, um, and they would practice that, practice that, practice that. And then before they had a test, they would be cued by the teacher. I want you to smell the pizza. Use your keep calm strategy. And they would do that, and then they would take the test. Another group of kids w- was told to think about being successful on a test. Recall a time when you did well on a math test, and if you didn't do well on a math test, think about a time you did well on other tests. And say to yourself, this is going to be another one of those times. Positive self-talk. So they would think about that, and then they would do that uh, you know, before the test. The other kids had standard uh, test prep. Do you remember? Uh, I, 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 Kerrigan, this may, you may be too young to remember this. But 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 some of us old folks, before we had a test, the teacher only, always told us to do three things. Get a good night's sleep and have a good breakfast. So, so, so some kids got the breathing, some kids got the positive self-talk, some kids got the standard, and as you would expect, the kids that got especially the breathing, uh, did, they did far better on their math tests. And it was like random assignment, uh, so it wasn't a function of math ability. And, and one of the things that we like to say is that when we give kids these SEL skills, they will perform closer to the level of their ability. Many kids underperform because these social and emotional factors get in their way. And I've spent the last 15 years working in um, uh, urban disadvantaged districts with schools where the the test scores are low and et cetera, et cetera. They've been under state takeover. And I see the smartest kids in those schools. Uh, The most interesting, talented, creative, fantastic kids But the academic stuff gets in their way, and the history of failure gets in their way. But when they start to get the ability to control their social and emotional skills, their emotions, they can calm themselves down before a test. They can focus better in preparation. They understand why they're doing what they're doing, where they have self-talk about confidence. They do what they do, they do fine. But there's a lot that we have to overcome in order to get them to that point, because there's been a very, very long history of learning failure that doesn't get transformed in a year. Not even a year, not even a good SEL curriculum in a year is gonna gonna be able to offset uh, a a negative learning history uh, that kids have. But multiple years in in a welcoming school environment where there's a positive climate, Uh, and the expectation that kids uh, can be successful, you see things. One of our mantras is that we're too quick to try to fix kids as if there's something wrong with them. And instead, we believe that inspiration precedes remediation. Before you try to fix a kid, inspire a kid. Make sure that kid knows that there's a future. Make sure that kid's identified with his or her positive purpose. And if you do that, then you're going to see the skills come online. But what we typically do is we remediate, we drill, we give them more summer school, we give them longer school day, and all we're doing is creating more Difficulty, what my grandmother would call surus, which is a Jewish expression for sort of like misery and grief. And the kids don't need that. They have enough of that. We don't need to be the agents of that. We need to be, we need to inspire these kids so that they can see the greatness in themselves. And then they will be propelled forward by that. So, yep, you know, from, 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 uh, from, from little things you know they're connected to, to, to very big things um, and at the heart of it again is the is this key this key set of skills the castle five skills uh, which which in a way all converge around uh, responsible ethical decision making
0: absolutely like you think you need self-awareness to to know how your actions are going to be aligned with your values, you need self-management to be able to take a step back, take a breath before you do something. Relationship skills, so it's true, it's like they're all kind of just like culminating into if you can practice all of these skills, you're going to be better at making res- responsible decisions. And something we we've kind of talked about, but I think we could talk a little bit more now is the, this like ethical side of things, or just the fact that our decisions inevitably affect other people. And how do we, how do we incorporate that into our decision-making and take perspectives of others and see how our decisions are going to affect others?
2: Right. And you know, in this uh, heightened awareness of issues relating to equity and racism, uh, that becomes uh, a huge issue because if we if we are not able to take others' perspectives truly, as opposed to projecting our perspectives onto others as if it were their perspectives, then then we're going to be making some faulty decisions. And you know, that's one of the reasons why Castle revised their um, Castle Five competencies a little bit. Now, to my thinking, what they've added in are uh, values—the uh, value of compassion, uh, the the value of being forgiving, the the value of, of being understanding, and the value of cultural humility. I mean, all these things to me are values. Castle sort of got them into the into the into the castle five, but but if you don't bring that to the table, um, you will make. You will make some very bad decisions, and you know if you if you think about a number of the incidents that have happened lately in the news, from uh, from police shootings to storming the Capitol, every one of those things was the result of a decision-making process, and in in every one of those cases, the uh, the decisions that were made were regrettable, and so yeah. You know, we, we, we need to put compassion front and center. We need to have a value of kindness in our schools. There's no, there's no, there's no exception to that. Um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a grandparent. And, you know, it was one thing to send my children to school. My children are okay. My grandchildren are really special. And, and it, I don't want them going to a school that is not going to treat them with kindness from the minute they, they set foot on the bus to the minute they get off the bus for all 180 school days. I want that to be a predominant value. And I want them to internalize that value. And I want them to be kind to others. I also then want them to have the skills to be kind to others. I want them to know how to modulate their tone of voice so that what they're saying comes off as kind. Because you know, you could say words that seem kind, but the tone makes them feel very unkind. And, and, and I want them to be um, I want them to have a good sense of interpersonal timing. So when do you say something to somebody? You know, when, when somebody's hurt and somebody's in pain and somebody's having a difficulty, you you want to go up to them at that point. You know, but that that's a skill. So so all of these things come together. But the value statements are really, really important. And, um, and you know, it, it comes from the fundamental belief that everybody deserves to be treated with kindness, that everybody deserves to be treated with compassion. So, you know, when parents, when people say, oh, you know, parents don't want values in this school, I, I don't believe that. I, I can't imagine a parent wouldn't want their kids to be treated with kindness and compassion for 180 school days without exception, whether it's the bus, the bus people, the security people, the, the people in the office, the teachers, the lunchroom aides, everybody should be treating my kid with kindness and compassion because you would want your kid to be treated with kindness or at least your grandchild with kindness and compassion. So, uh, yeah, so, so you know, I see a lot of possibilities. I see a lot of things that we can do better on, and I see... Um, SEL and responsible decision-making as being uh, important and feasible vehicles for that to happen.
1: Having gone through fairly extensive teacher training, I don't remember anyone ever talking to me about the importance of being kind as a teacher, and that's sad. You know, I,
2: I think that being a teacher is an incredibly complex job. And, and I really believe in my, in my heart of hearts, I really believe that, that if we're gonna be successful in getting to the next level in any of this stuff, we're gonna have to increase the amount of time it takes for someone to be trained to be a teacher. There is just no way to fit all the stuff into the same time period. And and there's more and more stuff, um, and more and more good stuff because we're learning more and more about learning, more and more about kids, and and we need time, you know. I, it's not enough to just say, oh, you should be kind, you know. The, it's got to be put into the practicum. It's got to be built into the student teaching. It's got to be it's got to be got to be meaningful, and um, and I don't know how we can do that in the current the, the way we've got things timed out currently for, for educators um, in training, I have a hard I have a hard time figuring out how to do it because because I don't you know I don't I don't think we have to drop pedagogy. Pedagogy is really important. Uh, we have to know really have to know deeply how do kids learn. How do kids learn? because if they don't if you don't we don't know how they learn then we don't are not going to teach them SEL either. They, we got to know how they learn. And, and we do have to be cognizant of the fact that some of our kids come to school not ready to learn through absolutely no fault of their own. You know, this is the great genius of the responsive classroom program. They recognized that, that functionally, teaching begins by the teacher before learning starts by the student. So, the teacher comes in in the morning and they start to teach. But the kid who's sitting there is still thinking about what happened at home or on the way to school or someplace else. And, and, and it's going to take a while for them to kick in. So, by having morning meetings, what we in social decision making call sharing circles, circle time, whatever, by having that in the beginning, we are not losing any instructional time, zero. Because even though the teacher is teaching, the kids aren't learning. And if we take those 10 to 12 minutes to help the kids with an emotional transition, when they start to learn, they will learn more efficiently. And as the responsive classroom folks have found through data, less is more. And so you do not lose any learning by taking some time away from direct instruction to help kids get emotionally ready to learn. And, and you know, this, I think, is the, um, the big challenge for many of us that believe so deeply and strongly in equity. We, we want to make the learning situation as great as possible for our kids. And we, we want them to be successful and happy in school and, and want to come. But they're still dealing Disproportionately with incredible burdens. And those are not burdens that we can relieve in the school. Political processes have to take place. Macro level things have to take place. And, you know, until we do that, a lot of kids are going to have to do twice as much to get half as far. And that is terribly unfair. But the way the system is rigged right now. If they don't do that, they lose out. So again, it's 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 abundant unfairnesses heaped on one another. But SEL has so SEL has a role to play in equity and anti-racism, but we we certainly have to understand that it it is limited in the role that it can play, and that that we've got to turn off the spigot, and that's got to happen outside. And of course, it'll take SEL skills on the part of adults to, to do that. But, um, but it's not like SEL in school is going to be the, the, uh, the vehicle that produces equity. If we rely on that, we're going to be victimizing more generations of kids. And then, you know, what happens, uh, you know, as always, we blame the, we blame the kids, right? We, we take the kids, we drill them on academics, we take away their art period, we take away their music period. We drill them on academics, their scores don't go up. Whose fault is it? It's the kid's fault. Or maybe the parent's fault. I don't think so. The last thing we should be doing is taking away the kid, the things that the kids love to do when they come to school. We rob them of their purpose, and then we blame them for not producing. doesn't make sense to me. So, this, by the way, gets to the heart of one of the most important parts of responsible decision making, and that is being honest about your goals and, and being clear about what you're doing for yourself and what you're really doing for others. And a lot of educational decisions are made for the educators, for their comfort for their position and not for the kids. And we have to be very honest about that, just as we want kids to not be selfish. You know, when when we talk to our kids in the social decision-making curriculum uh, and in our um, social, emotional, and character development lab materials, we define peer pressure as following other people's goals for you you don't know your own goals. You don't know where you want to go. And so therefore, you listen to what other people do. And your goal becomes to please other people. And then that makes you subject to peer pressure. And and so forming goals, knowing whose goals those are, uh, is a a deceptively uh, simple, but very, very important life skill. That constantly gets revisited over the course of time.
0: I could not agree more. Like I absolutely resonated with everything you've said today, but even just the last couple of things you've said about peer pressure and conceptualizing it in that way. And I think especially for kids, it can be so easy to, to fall prey to just doing what everybody else is doing. And so the fact that there's there are strategies in the place to help kids like identify for themselves what they're doing for them is just so amazing. And, and I just feel, I know there's so much work to do, but after ha- like having this conversation with you guys, I just feel super hopeful. And it's amazing to hear about all the, the work that you and everybody else in the field is doing and how much of a contribution you're making to these kids' lives. And it's truly just so special. And, um, I want to be respectful of your time. I've enjoyed this so much and I, I could talk to you for another two hours, but, um, I know we're we're running low on time, so I want to kind of just open it up to you and Tom, and to make any like final comments you have about SEL or responsible decision making. Anything you want to leave with our listeners?
2: Well, I'll just um, you know uh, I'll just to follow up on on one of the things Kerrigan uh, that you that you just said, um, and and that is that sense of purpose is a powerful powerful tool for kids, because when kids have a sense of positive purpose, they are indeed less likely to follow what their peers say. They are less likely to follow just what they hear in the news. Uh, They they have something to anchor themselves with. And of course, purposes change over time, and and that's fine. But, But when you're guided by a purpose, you are gonna be more likely to be a better decision maker and you're gonna be a better problem solver and you're gonna be a better classmate and you're gonna be a better citizen and probably even a better family member. So, uh, so I would just like to say that, um, that, that the skills are important, but uh, they, we could say that they're necessary but not sufficient. Uh, And that as we broaden our view to include uh, the the character, virtues, uh, and sense of positive purpose, I think we're going to find our kids are going to do even better uh, with regard to their SEL skills.
1: It's one of the best things to see, too, when kids find that purpose, even in just the small thing, you know, you talk about um, that whole idea of the light bulb going off yeah. over someone's head when they, when you know they kind of grasp something. But it's like there being a sun over their head when they ha- when they find that sense of purpose. And it's that's great. That's great. Easily that? one of the most rewarding things you know as a teacher you can have. It's Great image. The sun as opposed to the light bulb. That's
2: terrific.
0: Well, this has just been so special, and I feel like this was the best way we could have wrapped up this, this series. Um, thank you so much, Maurice. I, we really appreciate you coming on and talking with us, and I think people are really going to benefit from this conversation. So I want to leave our listeners with any way they can get in contact with you, maybe read more of your work, and, and just get in touch with you.
2: Yeah, well, um, I'm, I'm at uh, Rutgers University, my uh, my email address is uh, maurice. at rutgers.edu, Pretty simple, and I'm more than happy to follow up with folks. Um, I don't know if you're going to have, have a, a resource list or something that's uh, connected. So yes. I can. I'll send you some uh, resource materials that uh, people can great. get access to that can that can complement what we've talked about.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much.